hitching our wagon to any kind of civic program as the means to change the world is always going to fail. Yeah. It's always going to fail. The gospel is the only way. Welcome again to the Stand Firm podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, here as usual with Matt Kennedy of Church of the Good Shepherd Anglican in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Church Anglican in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. How are you guys doing? Great. Doing great, Nick. Good to be back. Well, the the new news that's buzzing around Christian circles is, of course, the recent ruling by the Supreme Court the other day. Uh, we're recording this on Wednesday, June 17th, by the way, in the case Bostock versus Clayton County, Georgia. And as the New York Times summarized the case, quote, the case concerned Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which bars employment discrimination based on race, religion, national origin, and sex. The question for the justices was whether that last prohibition, discrimination because of sex, applies to the many millions of gay and transgender workers. Now, some commentators, uh, Roger Ayer and Albert Moeller, for instance, have seen this decision as a frightening further erosion of religious liberties. Some others, like David French, see this as a ruling that doesn't necessarily affect religious liberty at all, confident that the court will carve out exceptions for religious employers and institutions. And the question I have for you guys to kick off our conversation today isn't a legal one or a legislative one, though, of course, you should feel free to address those issues. I feel like uh, Dr. Moeller and Senator Josh Hawley, for instance, and others have done a good job of beginning that legal discussion. So I want to ask the theologians and preachers a theological and preaching question. I want to ask you about the phrase that I think many people think is actually in the Bible, that followers of Christ should be in the world, but not of the world. Jesus tells his followers in John 15 that the world is going to hate them and that they are not of the world. He does, of course, then send them out into that world. In Romans 12, St. Paul asks us not to be conformed to this world, but at the same time, we do live here. Now, what is a Christian to do? Should we withdraw to protect ourselves and our families from a world that it seems increasingly hostile to biblical faith? Should we engage trying to change the world to conform it more and more to God's kingdom? Something in the middle. Talk to me about a Christian interaction with a world that largely rejects Christ? Uh, well, I mean, I think it's, it's hard to say, to answer that with an either-or answer, to, to pick one or the other alternative, because, because what is the task of the Holy Spirit in the world? It's to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And that's, and that's our bringing, bringing the gospel into the world is, is primary to our call. I think what makes it, makes it difficult is it, say, for the last... I don't know, uh, century, there's been a common agreement about values in this country. I don't think we ha ever had a, a Christian nation in the sense that we, everyone was basically a believer in Jesus Christ, but we had a basic agreement about Judeo-Christian values. And so being in the world um, and being of the world, uh, in America anyway, there wasn't a lot of, there weren't too many places where you had to really stand up and say, uh, no, we're very different than this. Um, now, civil rights movement was one area where I, one time when I think that would have happened. The, the, the abortion uh, debate has happened. And increasingly since those things, are, as our culture has completely continued to devolve and degenerate, 
Christians have found themselves in a difficult position. Do we um, do we appeal to the the needs and the felt needs and the wants and the desires and the culture by kind of accommodating all this and then showing how Jesus can speak to it, or do we need to be more confrontational? And I think uh, I think the kind of megachurch movement was the accommodationist perspective. The uh, but I think now, especially with after Ober Oberfell and this ruling, um, I think. I think there's going to be ha there's going to have to be an increasingly confrontational relationship with our with our culture, and that's going to take the form of us refusing to conform to things that, by law, we're I think in the future going to have to conform to, or they're going to try and force us to conform to. Us refusing to do so peacefully and paying the consequences for it. I don't think that uh, we I don't think we disengage in the sense that we stop speaking. I think we want, to, we want to think about disengaging in the sense of being concerned for our children, where they're educated, who's who's doing the work of raising the next generation, those kinds of things. I think uh, someone like Roger is absolutely right. We need to yeah. kind of pull away. But as far yeah. as actually engaging and and convicting this this generation of sin, so that we can also proclaim the gospel, I think no, we can't we can't disengage. We have to do what the church must do in the world is with the Holy Spirit. Uh, convictive sin, righteousness, and judgment. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I agree with you, Matt, and I think that um, you know, keep coming back to First Peter three. I mean, sort of a, a life verse, you know. Um, <laughs> that, uh, sorry, that just brought up so many uh, <laughs> sort of PTSDs from from middle school youth retreats. But anyway, um, but I, you know, he says he says, insofar as you can, you know, you, you don't don't give them a reason to dislike you other than the defense for the hope that you have within you. You know, this is the whole point that be prepared with a ready defense for the hope that you have within you and do it with gentleness and respect so that when they revile you and they, they can't just say you're a jerk, you know, you're, you're sort of just a, um, you, you know, you've got all these problems. Who are you to say? And so I think that's where I come back to like what our witness will look like. Um, you know, the law of God. I mean, I was preaching about this this morning, actually. I mean, the first commandment is the most offensive, you know, that you will have no other gods but me. I mean, that's, you know, well, what if you have all these other gods? You know, what about what about all the other? Well, I'm sorry, but you're you're wrong. You know, I mean, then it just starts going down the list. And so right. we don't have to say very much to come into conflict with an unbelieving world. Um, but the way that we comport ourselves as believers, I think, uh, you know, we can go back to the early church and see that not all of them were martyred. You know, I mean, there was, uh, yes, some of them were martyred, but not all of them. Most of them were able to, uh, to, to flourish in their own lives, have a hope that was set before them, and allow that hope to be witnessed by others who found the deficiency of their hopeless lives um, less attractive to a certain degree. And it's not, not, not sort of secret sensitive or anything like that. It doesn't mean water down the the message, but it does it does strike to a certain nominalist. We've talked about before uh, deficiency of nominal nominal Christianity when you sort of assume all of these these sort of uh, trappings of a Christian culture, like in your family or your or your church, and yet when it comes to putting them into practice, you don't really evince very much of it. Well, don't be surprised this when when the wind and the waves come that just wash you. Away, and I've been convicted by this in my own life. You know, Laz and I feel like we've come to a like a second growth spurt in our lives or something because you know it has a lot to do with having had children late a little bit. You know, there's a lot of unlearned patterns of our first ten years of marriage that we were forced by diapers to reevaluate. But it's been a wonderful process because I think the 
the way that we can hold these truths um, will be important going forward. And I think that there has been a reaction to sort of the strident and and sort of self-righteous way that some people have run into, you know, the sort of proclamation of the gospel. Um, but I'm, I'm convinced that just as meekly and as sort of gently and as gracefully you can say, nevertheless, the law into the world, that will provoke wrath, <laughs> like that will stir up anger, that will be the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And, and we are going to have to be prepared to to defend that hope and to articulate it and and sadly it looks like be prepared to withstand some of the persecution um or whatever some of the cultural opprobrium at the very least that um many of our christian brothers and sisters around the world are all too familiar with yeah i mean just uh, speaking we spoke last week about the the gospel as it is uh, but the false gospel of this world and this culture in particular which is which is the gospel of self-discovery. So you, you go, you, you dive deep down, you find out who you really are, and then you live in accordance with that. And it doesn't have to have, to have any kind of objective correspondence with your body or, or external reality. It, what matters is the in, inner self, That's right. uh, which, um, which is, you know, goes back to Gnosticism, I think, ultimately. Um, and, and that's, that's now encoded into our law. Yep. <laughs> that's, that's yep. that is now the law of the land is that, is that, uh, whoever a person feels himself or herself or itself or whatever itself <laughs> to be, that's what it is. And, and, and people who are under that delusion, people who really believe that are going to feel psychic pain when Christians say, no, you are a boy or no, you are a woman or no, you're a, a man, a man. I love you, but I'm not going to call you Z or uh, G or whatever it might be. You're yeah, a man and you're deluding yourself. And here's the truth. And here's the gospel. That's going to cause us all kinds of hatred in this yeah. world. And, and they're going to hear that when we say something as innocuous, not, not innocuous, but that seemingly as innocuous as there is a God and it's not yeah. you like and it's yeah, not you that's right. the announcement right. that means you are not whoever you say you are yeah in any yeah. event and that's super annoying i mean that's super super annoying i mean that's and and it will get you killed i mean this is what the jews knew you know they walked into egypt and said you know why are you worshiping our clock you know why are you the sun you know why are you worshiping you know the the river like and um that wasn't well received, you know. <laughs> so I think, but you know, I was thinking about this actually because um, I was doing some research on this. And as far as I can tell, it's it was coined by by Breitbart um, back this this statement that politics um, is downstream of culture. Have you heard that? You heard people say this before, and I, I think it makes that, yeah. sense. It makes a lot of sense, and I think that what we saw in the Supreme Court here is just a continuation of what we've seen in in many different um, rulings over the past century at the very least which is that there's a cultural consensus that changes like um, you know go all the way back to, to Roe versus Wade you know you had the cultural consensus change around uh, around abortion or at least at least among certain um, elites within the country and who are still surprised that it's an argument um, but nevertheless you know you saw then you saw the the court kind of manufacture a ruling that that comported with the with the the direction of the culture. And so I was always struck by this uh, because at least for me, when I was coming of age, I guess, and started reading, thinking about these things back in all the way back in 1992, there was a um, was seminal case, again, about abortion, uh, about Planned Parenthood, 
where uh, Justice Kennedy gave this amazing statement, and it's been it's been talked about to this day. I mean, David Brooks wrote an editorial about it just two years ago, and it was called the the sweet mystery of life uh, statement, where he says this in a opinion of the Supreme Court. He says, talking about the contraceptives, they call it, talking about abortion. He says these matters involving the most intimate and personal choices a person may make in a lifetime, choices central to personal dignity and autonomy, are central to the liberty protected by the Fourteenth Amendment. And this is this is the key. At the heart of liberty, it's so essentially the definition of our American experiment. The heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Beliefs about these matters could not define the attributes of personhood where they formed under the compulsion of the state. Well, that that is rightly understood to be an amazingly broad and sort of... Um, you know, quintessentially postmodern statement because it essentially puts the onus of of self-creation, you know, codifies it into law and puts and sort of just articulates what our modern world believes, which is not, as it turns out, all that modern, which is that we are, um, we can be like God, that we can define our own reality, not just what we want it to be, but we actually, now you have to admit that what I want it to be is actually true. You know, I want it, I want to be, um, uh, you know, a woman, and, and you have to affirm that not only can I just do that, you have to say that that is in fact true of me, um, yeah. because that's what it means to be um, sort free. of free in, in this society. And so I think, you know, we've seen um, this coming for a while. And I think, you know, people like Rod Dreher have been accused of being alarmist or whatever. And I think he's, you know, he's doing a good job of not saying I told you so. But I think, I you know, I hope, some of his, right now. I, I hope some of his most <laughs> dire, uh, dire prognostications or whatever are not come true. Obviously, you know, I hope that my children, um, you know, I hope that that there's that we remain some sort of civil discourse amongst these things. You know, of course, you look at some of the, the ways that people are dealing with their disagreements and it makes you wonder. But I do think his uh, you mentioned before, I think that his sort of Benedict option idea, which has been talked about at length and has been misunderstood and he keeps clarifying. But I think the idea that Christians are going to have to not retreat from the world, but but perhaps um, at least be more focused on their actual neighborhood, you know, like their actual family, their actual church, their actual um, sort of society and culture within that they actually have have influence over as opposed to, um, you know, hoping that the Supreme Court's going to going to bail us out or hoping that the next president's going to be like Billy Graham or what, you know, whatever the hope people may have in chariots, as it were, as the Bible say, you know, we have to put back our hope in the Lord. And so I think, um, I don't know, I've been struck by that, you know, with respect to everything from schooling to my own personal piety, um, to the extent that it is there, you know, to my own teaching, reading, preaching, like I've been, been pulling back my reach and trying to have wisdom about the actual um, influence that I genuinely have Mm. and, and exert that to the best that I can to the hopes of bringing the lost to, to, sheep in and equipping and feeding those that are that are here it's interesting to think about the the phrase i've been hearing a lot in in seemingly every um every arena of social life is the phrase um the right side of history and i've heard people talking about making decisions now in order to be on the right side of history. The idea that some future generation is gonna look back at us from their wizened perspective and see who was on the right side because of where history ended up. And there's that's a different thing than wanting to be right. 
right? Like the, the right side of history is not necessarily right, especially when there is a God who has actually spoken into the world. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if a certain, some eschatological uh, ways of looking at the world are true, then, then being on the right side of history is really a bad thing because, because right. history is going, going downhill until <laughs> yeah, Christ returns. True. And that's so right. you don't want to be on the right side of history because you're on the wrong side of God. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think it's harder and harder to hold up, speaking of eschatology, a post-mill perspective at this point. <laughs> so it would be, take a hit, take a couple of hits. That's at right. this point. Handel, not, Handel's disappointed. Right. <laughs> right. Um, so, well, I mean, I was going, going back to the question of, of, of the gospel in this, in this setting, the, the struggle, I think, and we've, we've also talked about this before, the struggle to maintain the justification of the self apart from Christ is just enormous. And so that's what's behind the pride uh, marches. You know, you, it's not just that we're going to engage in this secret sin. It's where we, we have to, we have to make this thing something that you celebrate that everybody celebrates in order to solve our conscience and yeah. justify our behavior. Um, it's not just that, Hey, I have these secret feelings that I'm really a girl you got to, you have to change your bathroom habits and you've got to, the signs in the bathroom door and the whole society has to bow down to, to my, my particular sense of who I am or else I, I, I can't deal because my, my, my justification, my self-justification come, is called into question. All of this goes back to the human, the deep need of the human person to, to be, uh, to have a calm conscience. That's right. That's right, and, and and to do that without God requires everybody else heaping praise and celebration yes. upon you and admiration upon you. I think that's a really good point, and I see a connection here between sort of. I've always wondered this: Why are so many people who wouldn't necessarily identify with the any of the identity markers that are represented by the LGBTQIATP? You know, why why is there such a a, a visceral need for that to be right you know and i've thought about this a lot and i may not be the, the fully this but i think there's something to the fact that if that's true you know if 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 transgenderism for instance is true if you literally can just decide by force of will that you can um be a woman or a man or whatever the case you may want to be or just fluid well then that says two things simultaneously there is no god because because reality is not defined externally and you might actually be one or, or yeah. to the extent that gods create reality, you can do that. And so that's very attractive to people, particularly as you were talking about people who are burdened by this incessant God-given need to be justified. Like where we are, we are sinful, unjustified, unrighteous people who are looking for justification of righteousness in all the wrong places. And so I think that there's a, there's a real connection between the two, because if we can get the law, we think, silenced, you know, stop saying this, just stop preaching this, and we think we can silence the law of God in our own bodies, in you know, the created ordinance of our own biological structures, we, if we can get that to stop speaking to us, yeah. well, then perhaps my conscience will stop yelling at me. And that's what creates such brittle people. I mean, I'm not surprised that the discourse has devolved to the point where we're just essentially yelling at people across, you know, the, the barriers, police barriers, or all manner of things. Because, because when you are um, brittle and exhausted and burdened and lost and harried, you know, like Jesus, uh, sheep without a shepherd, well, then that creates a, a anxious, um, fragile, uh, shrill, 
brittle person because that identity cannot withstand actual scrutiny or, or the weight of your life. And it has to be loud because there actually is a God, right? The, the law does in fact exist. God will not be mocked. He's like right. the hurricane outside your house and you can throw open the door and scream and you're going to get drowned out because the law is real. He is perfect and holy and righteous. And so what That's you right. have to do is get every single one of your neighbors to scream too. And perhaps if everyone screams That's in right. unison, the hurricane of the Lord's righteousness might be drowned out. That's right. And what's amazing though, is that it is the power of the law is, is as Luther pointed out, you know, the, the rustling of a leaf, you know, what did that mean? Well, well, you know, if you were walking through the woods, uh, you know, before you had, uh, you know, not in a tank, you know, and you heard the rustling of a leaf, well, that immediately brought up uh, fearful uh, concerns that perhaps you were about to get jumped, uh, which of course is also the concern of getting killed, you know, that, that, that the, the, the law comes with it. The sting of, of sin is the law and the power of sin is death, you know, or, or maybe misfeet saying that, but the, the, the interconnection of them is important because, because the small even quiet whispering of the law carries more weight than all of your futile yelling um, can, can imagine. It just cuts through like a piccolo, you know, in a, in a marching band. I just say everybody, everybody's voice needs to be brought in line or else they're, they're, they're at risk of having that noise of condemnation come down on them. Right. Yeah, and, and the, real, the real tragedy, of course, and we all know this, but is the real tragedy, is, of course, is all that needs to happen is actual confession and mm. actual, you know, if, if you just instead of suppress the conscience, allow the conscience to speak and then say, yes, I'm guilty, and then see that, that yeah, someone, uh, someone has, has taken that, uh, that the weight of that guilt and the weight of that pain, the weight of, the weight of your conscience and borne all of that weight himself on the cross and you are forever forgiven and free. Mm man, that sets you free. You don't have to, you, okay, so I have these, not me personally, but so I have these feelings of being a man rather than a woman or a woman rather than a man. Oh, that's part of my sin nature. I can deal with that. I mean, I don't have to, I don't have to make everyone else conform to that. I don't have to conform to that. I can, I can, I can let go and, and be free. And I, I, that's, that's the power of the gospel in this situation. And I think we, in fact, the, the, the more the false gospel of this culture is proclaimed and codified, I think, the greater opportunity we have because it's, 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 it was more subtle for 50 years ago, you know, the law gospel, the, the question of morality wasn't really something that a lot of people were, you know, I guess it was there. Maybe just go hundred years ago. The, the question of morality wasn't something that was too much in disagreement. We had a basic set of virtues that we, and values that we had. Uh, now that that's gone, man, I mean, there's, there's an opportunity to begin really preaching the law bringing people's conscience to bear on their own hearts and, and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen. And Christianity is the only um, system in which death is not the end. Well, is that not the only system in which death is not the end period, but it's the only system in which death is actually the beginning of the good part. We are brought to death by the law of God and resurrected by Jesus Christ in a way that the world just cannot understand. For the world, rightly so, it's how it works in the world. Death is the final bad news. And so when, you're, when you start talking to somebody about their way of life, 
um, leading only to death, they freak out like the like the shark that gets pulled into the bed of the fishing boat and it's hooked and it's dying and it doesn't know it yet and it's going crazy and it can still bite. Yeah. And, Does it have a helium um, tank in its mouth? <laughs> <laughs> we are going to need a bigger boat. That's right. <laughs> but this, this dying shark is thrashing around and it will still kill you. Mm-hmm. But it's only in Christ that death can be seen as an opening to eternal life. Yeah. And I think that's just a re, I mean, it's a re, um, inspiration to just get back out and keep preaching, you know, because we're, we're fundamentally, like we talked about in the Holy Spirit episode, I mean, fundamentally charismatics in that respect, like there is a power to the, to the word, you know, preach law and distinguish properly. And that, you know, I think that, that it's in many people's sort of, particularly in the kind of elite, um, circles, cultural elite, it's been, if they met any Christian, it's been sort of so socially watered down to a um, kind of a, just a sociological phenomenon. You know, people it's just kind of, well, that's kind of a cultural thing that you do um, that I don't really want to participate in that they're, they, you know, it's sort of like when we, we talk about these things, it's like, it's like a foreign language, you know, because, because there's, there's actual power to the, <laughs> the confession and repentance there's actual new life that comes by faith i mean it does it reorders your entire affections it reorders it reorders your your convictions you know it starts you you begin to have something other to lay down your life for than yourself you know and i think that to talk about that is one thing you know i think there's a whole generation of people that kind of were were taught something different than that it was respect to christianity and we're seeing them you know just getting mowed down by the um by the the culture because if christianity to a certain degree was about sort of fulfilling yourself or finding your finding your true inner nature within or the god was sort of um you know just within you 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 know you and jesus uh walking alone through the woods uh well then you know it's unsurprising that that just dovetails so nicely with with the spirit of the age i mean matt i love your you can tell our listener i love that about um about uh the the little apologetic training that you do with your kids about uh turning bible stories into uh into disney movies have we have we talked about that before i think it's just, you need to write a book about this it's a wonderful pedagogical tool i love it I mean, Disney has its own gospel, doesn't it? Like, or is it, every Disney story follows its own its own kind of stereotypical pattern. You have the, um, the maybe the, the the girl who's who's mean daddy doesn't understand her, um, but who then you know finds um, finds yeah maybe up there where there's air, fathers don't reprimand their daughters. <laughs> right. you know, it's like, well, you're in for a big right. And the climax, <laughs> the climax is always like the single tear flowing down the eye with the, of the father, right? Kiss. And then you have, and then and it's all over. It's great. Yeah, it's an, it's amazing. We can just take that and take the Bible take stories. Take the Bible see, stories Jesus. and try That's to work, right. try to do a Disney version of them. And it's really good to see how, oh, wait, Disney and the Bible are very different. <laughs> well, I've been reading, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot uh, for a long time now. So, I mean, I don't, and I know we're not alone in that, but, you know, the the parallels um, between the early church and the world that I'd that inhabited and in our world, you know, becoming more we we have seen them more clearly than previous generations, at least in modern memory, have um, with respect to the kind of the foreignness even of a Judeo-Christian worldview among certain segments of the society, particularly, you know. Um, and Liza and I were introduced to this directly because when we were in Germany, it's really funny, I, we were six years, three or two and a half years in Berlin, which, you know, in every statistic is like the least God-fearing city on the world. I don't know if our German listeners listen, he might take exception to that, but let's just say it's not, it's not heavily uh, Christianized. And, you know, our, 
um, experience of that was really instructive because when we came back to Louisville, they were like, oh, you're going to be so bored. You know, you're going to be, it's just, it's not cosmopolitan like, uh, like Europe was. And I was like, well, look, you know, we weren't ready to get back to Sam's and like having a car and didn't mind. Like we're excited about being back in America, but culturally speaking, we're not far behind, at least not particularly in where we were in kind of, you know, the, um, the Episcopal church world. I was like this, this we're one generation perhaps away from, uh, losing this all. And I said, you know, for instance, take for instance, the question of sexual morality, right? You know, I was like, if you're a father of a 16-year-old girl in Germany, or a boy for that matter, the only questions you ask are consent and contraception. That's it. That's the only two rules. So if you're raising your child to, to inhabit the modern world in Berlin, those are the two sort of cardinal virtues of modern uh, sexual morality, and that's it. And that's it. And I said, so, you know, again, I'm not saying those are bad people necessarily, but that is a that is a lost person compared to the so their history of um, of the gift of of intimacy that the Bible lays out and that we've inherited through the Judeo-Christian worldview. And I think that things like that are going to sound more and more foreign, if not if not um, insane, or if not what we're hearing more. Um, harmful, you know, hurt. I mean, this, and you see this all through, you know, read the literature, the Kinsey literature and stuff, you know, talking about suppression, talking about, um, you know, guilt, even the idea of guilt is a, is a carryover from a, a previous primordial, you know, religious age. And we need to transcend all these things. It's like, well, good luck, you know, you good think? luck. I mean, see how that, and again, I'm not contemptuous to people that don't believe what we're believing, but I'm going to preach to them and, and pray that, that something of the hope set before me will be set before them. The elevation of, quote, natural urges is just another evidence that we have installed ourselves as God. Yeah, well, I mean, Augustine saw our entire differentiation between animals was not that we, we have all the same urges. It's just we actually have the, the ability to, to, to certain degree, transcend them. You know, it's like self, the fruit of the spirit actually raises people out of their animalistic base urges and, and reorders the, the wills and desires to the good of, of humanity, not to its own destruction. You know, and we see that um, all the all the time. I mean, the goods of of sex and food and and uh, work. You know, all these wonderful goods, when not used to in their proper, when when tainted by sin, become the very vehicles for our own self destruction. You know, right. workaholism, sexual addictions, you know, obesity and drug addiction. I mean, whatever the case may be. And again, right. I'm not speaking as holier than thou in anyone. I'm speaking as a redeemed sinner who is painfully connected with Romans 7, like the Apostle Paul, and nevertheless fighting uh, for the sake of my neighbor, namely my wife and kids, and now my congregation, um, every single day. That sounds to a psychologist like suppression. You know, we, we need to talk about your sense of self-loathing, James. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, you know, I actually don't loathe my, my self-clothed in Christ, but I have some problems with, uh, with Adam, you know, <laughs> rearing his head, and, um, and I'm grateful for a means by which um, you know, the flesh can be subdued, um, sins can be forgiven, and I can be raised daily, if not hourly, to new life by faith in Christ. So I remember when I was in, in seminary, uh, the, there was a particular professor, I can't remember which class it was, but he was making some arguments. This is way back in 1999, I think, making some arguments for uh, opening, quote unquote, the church to more permissive views of sexuality and one of the points one of the one of the, one of the primary points he was making is that well hey look you know look, look at look at nature 
um, there's a certain particular species of monkey, and I think it was the bobo monkey somewhere. I'm not sure where the bobos are, but but there is rampant homosexual behavior among the bobo monkey in wherever they are. And look, right, the community mic drop. is mic drop. <laughs> the community is thriving. So you know that. Is he also making an argument that we should allow for uh, throwing your feces around uh, <laughs> right, in church too? Be like, see, this is just what happens. It's exactly. Like, so I thought, is this where we are? I mean, are we really looking to monkeys for our moral guide, guidance? Are we looking to are we looking to beasts to give us lessons in virtue? Is that where we are? And in fact, it it is where we are. That's, mm-hmm. that's precisely where we are. But I mean, okay. So one one thing I think that I, I do think is hopeful coming out of this is as horrible as the decision was, and as bad as it bad as it, as it is for our republic. For the church, I think it, it may have the effect, and I'd say I put may and let me draw that in lightly because you never know, but it may cure us of the idea that that p- politics is the way to change the world. I think the church has had that idea for a long time, um, and, and so we've hitched our wagon to various political parties. Uh, in the 80s, it was the Republican Party. I think increasingly it's the Democratic Party in the, in the present day. But hitching our wagon to any kind of civic program as the means to change the world is always going to fail. Yeah. It's always going to fail. The gospel is the only way. And, we, and, and then the church is the vehicle for spreading the gospel, proclaiming the gospel. We preach to the world, but we, we, we don't need to be involved in picking parties or programs. That's a good I mean, that's a, that's a good point, Matt. I mean, I think I certainly have... have um, I've been thinking a lot about that uh, too, because I think that the sort of the the this, what's been called you know the the compromise that evangelical voters made with Trump you know on account of getting these Supreme Court justices has been proven to be a, a false compromise because you know the very first judge that that Trump um, you know appointed Gorsuch. Uh, proves to be writing the majority opinion for this, which was, you know, is, remains to be seen. I mean, of course, David French says we shouldn't worry about it, but most most Christian intellectuals at least see um, some heavier weather coming as a result of this um, for Christians who hold to sort of traditional ideas of gender and sexuality um, as a result of this. And so I think you're, I think you're right. I mean, I wrestle with that because I think that, um, you know, Christian involvement in politics is a is a given for a political person. I mean, I think that's where, you know, if you're a Christian, you have to consider what is my role, my civic responsibility. Sure. And so I think, you know, individually speaking, I, I think that we still have a responsibility. And I'm grateful for for thoughtful Absolutely. politicians who are Christians, like Josh, you mentioned Josh Hawley earlier. I mean, I thought his statement was very articulate. He's very well trained. And I'm um, now a big fan of his, or at least I think I'm going to be. I'm going to do some more research. But but in general, I think there's a, there's a balance here because we do have to appreciate, and this is my hopeful thing for my children and grandchildren, is that the American experiment, and I've been talking about this a variety of places, really is, is, a, is a miracle. I mean, there's always alternatives on how to govern a country, you know, and we've had thousands of years of human history to, to reflect upon. But when you look at the inheritance that we've been given, however imperfect but where there is there isn't wanton tyranny there isn't um there are laws that people follow by and large you know there are um there are uh, peaceful protests that aren't just mowed down by policemen you know things like this 
there are it's 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 really something quite beautiful to to observe even with its great imperfections that are addressed and hopefully um fixed you know generation after generation so i think my my hopefulness is that we can have a have a revival of sorts of an appreciation for the tools that have been bequeathed to us um, that we call the sort of rule of law or the, the divided system of government or a constitutional sort of framing that, that I do think um, uniquely um, amongst the world governments has a pride of place for the individual, you know, has, a, has protections for the most um, what may be considered deviant of personal behaviors. You know, nevertheless, there's an incredible liberty and incredible freedom that is, um, that is enshrined into our, into our uh, sort of DNA that, I, that I'm more worried about losing than any particular Supreme Court argument here or there. And so I think that's my hope is that people, Christian people will obviously put their trust where it needs to be placed, which is not into the hands of, of our temporal rulers, um, but at the same time be encouraged to re-engage to the extent that they can in our system of self-governance and, and, and perhaps make arguments or at least uh, supportive good ideas going forward that will continue to help us maintain a sense of, of liberty and freedom and justice that the world really um, you know, used to be and I think continues to be in some way a beacon to the world. Well, all right. I think we're going to let that be our last word. As usual, we come to the end of the time we allot ourselves each week with much more that could be said. Of course, we like to leave you all wanting more. Uh, thank you for listening. Thanks again to Matt Kennedy and J.D. Koch for their wisdom. I'm Nick Lannon. We'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. 